At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The gist is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code GIST at checkout to get 10% off. And by Betterment, the largest automated investing service managing billions of dollars for people just like you. Get up to six months of investing free when you go to betterment.com slash gist. Betterment, investing made better. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, April 12th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It was 40 years ago today that this guy was born. He's officially called Yodely Guy, or as he's dubbed in the French-speaking parts of Switzerland, everyday song we sing all the time, Gee. Yeah, the mountain climber game from The Price is Right. It debuted on The Price is Right April 12th, 1976. So let's apply Yodely Guy to a story in the news. Today, our federal state working group, uh, which I co-chair, is announcing a new $5 billion settlement with Goldman Sachs. Uh, to resolve claims over the bank's deceptive practices leading up to the housing crash. It's Eric Schneiderman announcing a $5 billion fine of Goldman Sachs, who's advertised on this very program. Now, according to a report in the New York Times, let's see how much, after tax breaks and credits, Goldman Sachs will save off this $5 billion bill. Okay, is it $100 million? Is it $200 million? Well, if Goldman pays its fine towards affordable rental development, they get credits. Five in credits for every dollar spent for giving loans if they pay before November 30th, 2016. Oh, so are they saving half a billion? Are they saving $600 million? Check this out. Half of the settlement is a criminal fine, not a civilian fine. All of that's a tax write-off. Guess what Goldman will really be paying of the $5 billion figure? Only $4 billion. Now that said, $4 billion is still $4 billion, although we just demonstrated that $5 billion is actually $4 billion, didn't we? And Goldman did make $33 billion in revenue. More to the point, just about exactly $4 billion, that's how much they made in mortgage-backed securities back in 2007. Every company that settled with the feds over mortgages has gotten that criminal fine tax break. That is how criminal fines work. Bank of America settled for $16 billion. Actually, it'll probably cost them over $9 billion. JP Morgan gets billions of credits on the billions they settled with the government. It's how it works. It's what you've got 
when you get the lambs going in to negotiate a settlement with the wolves. Oh, by the way, someday maybe the lambs are looking to get hired by Wolf Group LLC. And oh yeah, two former alpha wolves have been tapped to run the wool dispensary for the shepherd. You, you get what I'm saying? There were treasury secretaries came from Goldman Sachs. I'm saying there are a lot of complications with trying to negotiate a deal. Now it should be said, even though Goldman and the banks will enjoy some tax savings, the beneficiaries like housing programs and different kinds of banks and people who are underwater, they actually will benefit. They'll be getting their money. It's just this part. New York and New York families uh, and communities will receive $670 million in cash and consumer relief. That sticks in my craw because there's the attorney general saying Goldman will be contributing this much money to state coffers. Yeah, but Goldman will be denying three or four times that amount to federal coffers. It's the law. It's the rules, but you're just overstating how much you'll be paying to the tax man when, in fact, you'll be not paying a lot more to a slightly different tax man. All I'm saying is that I do not see a lot of evidence that it pays to be anything other than Goldman Sachs. On the show today, I spiel about that incident when Jiminy Cricket was packing heat. Okay, not really, but guns and Pinocchio will be my subject. But first, remember yesterday we dove deep into Wyoming delegate math? That was a lot of fun. Well, we go even deeper today because the high priestess of the Wyoming Democrats is here. Percentages will be discussed, but so will Parks and Rec. I have a website. I've told you about the website. The website has been useful in getting feedback. The website is MikePesca.com. And I'm mentioning this because if you want to give me feedback, I guess we haven't been great with giving out the email, but you can figure it out. And we have a Facebook page and we have all these other pages. But the website's really been a font of feedback because it has that little icon for the for the, the envelope. One day in the future, the envelope icon won't mean feedback. It will be whatever icon is that connotes feedback on a website. But of course, in a weird loop, the icon that's connoting feedback on a website is an envelope. Anyway, it's all made possible by Squarespace. I built this website, a little help from my friends here like Andrea, but I built the website myself. I am not a coder. I am not a webbing genius. I don't even know if the word webbing is a word, but Squarespace gives me the intuitive and easy to use tools. And you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So to start your free trial today at squarespace.com, check it out. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code GIST and you get 10% off your first purchase. See how nice my website is. It's three W's, then a dot, then MikePesca.com, Squarespace. So this Democratic primary, both of them, but the Democratic especially, has been so captivating. It makes you care about things you didn't even know you cared about, things that you didn't even maybe know existed, like like the definition of qualified or all those Democrats in the U.S. Virgin Islands or all those Democrats abroad or all those Democrats in Wyoming. Yes, the Wyoming Democrats, there are approximately 40,000 of them. And riding herd over all the Wyoming Democrats is Amy Van Cleve, the executive director for the Wyoming Democratic Party. Hello, Amy. Hello. So uh, first of all, I have to compliment you that your two favorite quotes on your website, one is from Hillary Clinton and the other is from Leslie Nope. I think we all aspire to be Leslie Nope. (laughs) That should orient the listeners into your worldview a little bit. So yesterday on the show, I said that the turnout in the caucuses was somewhere around 7,000. That's about as close as we got. And I put a call out to you and you got back to me after the show. So do we know anything closer to what was turnout for these caucuses? Yeah, it was just over 7,200. 
mm-hmm. which is a little lower than our 2008 number, which was 8,600. And that is, am I right, there's about 40,000 registered Democrats in Wyoming? That's right. And you have to be registered to participate in a caucus? You have to be registered by a deadline, which is um, usually about two weeks before the caucuses. So there are 14 delegates at stake, and they were split 7-7, but Bernie Sanders did get more of the vote. Now, I've only seen the vote recorded or reported as in the triple digits because that's what? Those are the delegates who were assigned at the meeting places to the state convention. Am I getting that right? That's right. So 156 of our 280 delegates to the state convention went to Senator Sanders, which comes down to 55.7%, and 124 of our 280 went to Secretary Clinton, so 44.2%. So my question is, I'm sure this is a a question that a number of people asked, why with the split of 55 to 44, so that's uh, 11, it actually, if you go by the decimals, a little more than 11%, why was it an even split in pledged delegates? I know that an 8 to 6 split would be something like a 57 to 43% split, but it seems closer to an eight to six split instead of a seven to seven split. Can you explain why? Yeah. So we go ahead and we round that 55.7 up to a 56, now it's 56.44. And ultimately it comes down to a seven, seven split because our delegates are awarded proportionally. Now you would think 56% of 14 should give you an eight, six split. But the problem is we don't award the lump sum proportionally. We award the different types of delegates proportionally. So we take our eight district levels and we award them, and then our four at large and award them, and our two PLEOs and award them, which is a national rule. Okay. When you do the math that way, it does come down to 7-7. And for Bernie Sanders to have gotten one more delegate, how many actual people might, I mean, if he got the right people to switch votes, how many people are we talking about? If he had gotten 200 more votes, might he have uh, achieved an eight to six split? It was incredibly close, much closer than most of us thought they were going to be. And so, yeah, if turnout had just been a little bit higher, Senator Sanders could be looking at an 8-6 split. And are we literally talking about low triple digits changing their vote or double digits changing their vote if they were the right double digits in the right districts? I would say we're looking at triple digits changing their vote, but it does depend on where in the state they are. Right. So the smaller counties, they only have a few delegates to award, but the larger counties, which were awfully close, most of them would have made the difference for him. Do you think it's fair that smaller counties are sort of under, not underrepresented, but not overrepresented? You know, a very small county has a very small influence on this state election. Right. Well, we are looking at the population. And so in a lot of these areas, If you look at the total number of people living there, it's relatively small. And then look at just the total number of Democrats. I'll I'll give you an example. Niobrara County gets two delegates to the state convention. And 17 people in Niobrara County participated in their county caucuses. So those 17 people actually had a lot more weight over where their delegates went than folks, say, in Laramie County or in Albany County. How many uh, delegates to the state convention from Laramie County? 51. 51, and that was how, and how many voters showed up? And in Laramie County, we had about 1,400 voters. Okay, so 1,400 to 51, that's about 28 delegates per person. 
if I'm doing my math right. And whereas in that first tiny small count, there's about seven delegates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, guess what? This is an analogy for America as a whole, isn't it? Wyoming. Now, I'm not going to ask you to justify this, but it is true that Wyoming has a disproportionate influence. Your 14 delegates per person voting is a lot less than, say, Texas's. Oh, absolutely. Wyoming, I would say, based on our small population and the few number of Democrats, we carry a lot of weight. And that actually is a good reason to encourage people in Wyoming to vote, because your vote matters, I'd say, a whole lot more than if you live in Florida. Yeah, in fact, I calculated that to win a delegate, now it was a 7-7 split, so no one netted delegates, but to win a delegate in Wyoming, and it's also unfair to compare caucuses to primaries, but you needed to convince about, you know, 550 humans to vote for you if you were one of these candidates. To win a delegate in Texas, you needed to convince like 6,500 humans to vote for you. Yeah, absolutely. Why is that fair? I personally think that there should be more consistency in the process that states should either be primary states or caucus states. And it's really difficult and hard for the voters when you have friends in one state and they're a primary state or even another caucus state where the rules are different. It does make it difficult to be an informed voter who turns out and participates in something that you care about. Well, is this arguing against self-interest because you're saying Wyoming should have fewer delegates? Wouldn't you as the chair of Wyoming want as many delegates as you could get? I suppose it depends on whether or not you're looking at little d Democrats or big d Democrats. For the Wyoming Democratic Party, we certainly benefit, Mm -hmm. and I'm not about to complain about it. But for the country as a whole, I would like to see voters feel that their voices are being heard and represented in a in a way that's equitable. Got it. One more question. Now, one argument, I guess, against Hillary Clinton is that she's winning all these states or doing well in all these states where uh, they'll never vote Republican, all these southern states. And by the way, people say that about places like North Carolina, which did vote Democrat for Obama. They're saying about Georgia, which could vote Democrat if, you know, some disastrous Republican candidate like Donald Trump is nominated. That said, the same could be said about Wyoming. Like, oh, okay, fine. Bernie won more of the popular vote. And he's bragging about this, but they'll never vote Democrat anyway. What's the counter to that? Sure, you you know Wyoming's not going to vote Democrat in the presidential election. So what's the counter to why are we paying attention to a state that's never going to turn Democrat in the actual election? So voters in Wyoming, in Oklahoma, and in Kansas, all the state where Senator Sanders did extremely well, they're aware that their state is unlikely to go for a Democrat in the general election. But that doesn't mean that Democrats in those states shouldn't have their voices heard in the presidential primary. And to go back to your point about the South, not only could North Carolina and Georgia go blue in the general, as they have and could in the past, but also if we look at the demographics of those places, Wyoming, Oklahoma, and Kansas are predominantly white states. And to write off the South where, you know, for the most part, we're looking at African-American and Latino voters, that's a dangerous argument for the Democratic Party to make that we can write off whole states where demographics are much, much different than they are in the rest of the country. Right. That's not true in Wyoming, but I suppose what would be true in Wyoming is your Democrats, the passionate Democrats, they, they're much more passionate about this than the, than the actual election. They know that they're not really going to have a say in the election, but this, I mean, how they vote can be hugely influential. Yeah, Wyoming really, I think, will set the tone going into New York 
And that's a wonderful opportunity for our Democrats that they don't always get to have. However, even though we won't go blue for the president this November, we do have the opportunity to really make a difference in down-ballot races here. And so I hope that Democrats in my state can capitalize on the energy they're feeling now and channel that into going towards November as a unified voice. All right. Amy Van Cleve is the executive director of the Wyoming Democratic Party. I hear at 23 years old, you're the youngest executive director in the country. Is that right? I am the youngest, and I actually took my job when I was 22. Okay, but now you're 23. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right, so you're long in the tooth there at 23. Amy Van Cleve, (laughs) thank you, and thank you for embodying the words of Leslie Nope. There is nothing we can accomplish if we work hard, never sleep, and shirk all other responsibilities in our lives. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. So everything you do, I mean, convenience now pretty much is intertwined with the internet. I don't know, maybe if you're a canoeist or a cabinet maker, untrue, but I bet you're on ecanoe.com. The e prefix, that used to be a big thing. Now, not so much. Anyway, we've disrupted the canoe space enough. But think about finance. There are sites out there that will let you trade stocks. But what about if you want to just get control of your wealth, such as it is, if you want to plan for retirement, if you just want to get on top of things, but you're comfortable with the internet, you're comfortable with an app, interfaces that are online are even preferable to you. You don't want to hire a guy necessarily, go into his office, you know, look at his suit that probably should have been swapped out 11 years ago. Well, there's a great app for you and it's called Betterment. It allows you to take control of your financial future. It has 150,000 customers. They're managing over $4 billion in money for people like you and people like you or people who maybe listen to podcasts and wouldn't mind to have a low cost way of managing their finances and the feeling, the feeling of just that you've got a grasp of this thing, this really important thing, like why you work every day is this thing I'm talking about, betterment. You can get up to six months of automated investing free, and you could also find out more information when you go to betterment.com slash gist. That's betterment.com slash gist. It makes investing easier at a lower cost. Betterment, investing made better. And now the spiel, six shooters, three Pinocchios. The candidates for the Democratic nomination are gunning for each other over the issue of guns and policing, and they have two surrogates, both named Erica, in play. Erica Smegliski is one of the family members of Sandy Hook. Her mother died in the Connecticut Elementary School, and she has been unstinting in her criticism of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Shame on you, Bernie Sanders, she tweeted, adding, he owes families like mine and families involved in the lawsuit an apology because he really has had a callous dismissal of our concerns and our fight for justice. He's picking the gun lobby over our families. This was encapsulated in a recent New York Daily News headline, Bernie's Sandy Hook shame callously defends gunmakers against Sandy Hook kin. I'll tell you what's going on here. First of all, callously is misleading. I would say, if anything, understandably, this is his stance. It's a tough one to take, especially when juxtaposed with the emotions of Sandy Hook family members. But as Bernie says, gun manufacturers and dealers who follow the law shouldn't be allowed to be sued. It makes as much sense as suing a hardware store if someone attacks you with a hammer. This vote, about a 10-year-old, decade-old vote that they're attacking him over, was a law shielding gun manufacturers. 
giving them immunity because they were about to be sued. The vote passed the House of Representatives by 139 votes and the Senate by 34 votes. It was overwhelmingly popular. And it wasn't too tough a vote for an elected official from Vermont, as Bernie was then. I suspect it's a tough one now, given the climate now, especially for someone who's trying to gain the Democratic nomination as a liberal insurgent. So on ABC's This Week, Sanders took umbrage at the presence of Sandy Hook family members in Hillary Clinton ads. Let me deal with that. Um, I get a little bit upset when one of the great and horrific tragedies in modern American history, unspeakable, becomes a political issue. Yes, yes. When a tragedy becomes a political issue, which exactly brings me to the second Erica, Erica Garner, daughter of Eric Garner, who was choked to death by a New York City cop. And Erica Garner is appearing in a Bernie Sanders ad. My dad's name is Eric Garner. I was able to see my dad die on national TV. They don't know what they took from us. I would say that's an effective ad. Very effective. I would say it's a fair ad. Just as I think it's fair to use a Sandy Hook surrogate to not let Bernie squirm off the hook for his immunity vote. I also think it's fair for Hillary Clinton to say the following about Vermont's gun laws, though some fact-checking organizations disagree. Most of the guns that are used in crimes and violence and killings in New York come from out of state. And the state that has the highest per capita number of those guns that end up committing crimes in New York come from Vermont. The Washington Post's fact checker gave that statement three Pinocchios, which combined with two Sebastian the Crabs is a full house in a game of Disney playing cards, Omaha High Low. Actually, the Washington Post defines three Pinocchios as in the realm of mostly false. Also, three Pinocchios are only two Pinocchios short of the minimum number of Pinocchios it takes to recraft into a quality armoire. Mostly false or so taken out of context as to be very misleading. Let's check those checkers. First part of the statement. Most of the guns that are used in crimes and violence and killings in New York come from out of state. That's totally true. In 2014, the state identified 4,585 guns used in crimes in New York State. 1,397 of those guns came from in-state. The rest were acquired from out of state. What about the second part of that statement? And the state that has the highest per capita number of those guns that end up committing crimes in New York come from Vermont. That's true, too. The biggest states contributing to the New York gun problem were Virginia, Pennsylvania, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. Each of those states, three to four hundred guns flows into the New York state borders and commits crimes. Vermont only contributed 55 illegal guns to New York, but on a per capita basis divided by the number of people in the state, you know that that's what per capita meant, Vermont is the highest. Yeah, Virginia is a lot bigger problem than Vermont, but that's because Virginia is a lot bigger than Vermont. One expert quoted in the Washington Post said, if we want to cut off the supply lines of guns to New York, what supply line is the largest, Virginia or Vermont? And she said, it would be great to cut them both off, but given the choice, I'd go with Virginia. Well, duh, 
So I guess it's misleading if you think that what Hillary was trying to do is to fool us, to convince us that Vermont really is the biggest problem. I've just demonstrated it's not. And while Hillary Clinton surely wouldn't mind if you came away with that misimpression, I think it's assuming a lot to say that her motivation was to want to fool us. I think what she really wanted to do was express that Vermont is bad. Not bad in total number or raw terms, but bad in what its laws are like. Vermont's laws are 100% terrible, i.e. there are no gun laws there. That's what Hillary Clinton is looking to convey. What are the consequences? 55 guns. It's not a lot of guns, but Vermont's not a really big state. The only reason that Vermont isn't one of these dangerous states fueling the iron pipeline is that Vermont is so tiny. It's a Maltese. And who cares if the Maltese is off the leash? It's untrained and can't hurt you. So I get all that, but she's trying to put it into context, not strip it of context. Maybe looked at one way, looked at the other way. There are some things that per capita doesn't really apply to. And guns supplied to other states, that's not the most per capita thing in the world. And Vermont should know about per capita things, as WVNY's Mike Kirkhoff noted. Per capita, the winner is usually Vermont. Vermont has the most breweries per capita, the most cheesemakers per capita, most pediatricians per capita, the most colleges, most charities, most Peace Corps volunteers, the most certified organic farmers, most libraries. But not the most Pinocchios per capita. Still, I'd have shaved a Pinocchio or two from the Washington Post total. I think they over-Pinocchioed Hillary, though the specter of slicing and shaving up wooden boys who just want to become real boys, that really is taking political advantage of a tragedy. And we all know how incendiary that and shaving wooden boys can be. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is proud of her D-minus rating from the NRA and her junk status rating from Moody's. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is always bragging that Wachovia Securities once downgraded him from outperform to accumulate. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, was rated as ages nine plus by Common Sense Media because he has positive role models, but high consumerism. The gist, we took a little off our fastball, so now it's rated as fringe average to organizational depth by the scouting system. Ha! Huh, three Pinocchios, I say. Umpuru, depuru, dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>